Yes, sir. What's your name? My name is Joe Wurzelbach. Good to see you, Joe. I'm getting ready to buy a company that yeah. uh, makes 200, about $250,000, $270,000, $80,000 a year. All right. Your new tax plan is going to tax me more, isn't it? Well, here's what's going to happen. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. That was Joe, the very famous plumber you just heard. We're joined today by our buddy Alex Bloomberg. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you, Alex. Today is Thursday, October 16th. It's about, what is it, 10 to 4 in the p.m. here in New York. Adam, go ahead and give us the Planet Money indicators. Well, actually, I want to bring in our buddy Tom Corona from Tradition Asia Securities. He is on the front lines of the credit crisis. Tom, are banks lending to each other yet? Uh, the bank market is still frozen. Uh, there's been sporadic lending in the very short area of one month. Uh, we haven't seen really any significant lending yet in uh, the uh, longer dates, three months through six months. Uh, people don't quite understand exactly what the guarantees on these banks are yet, and I guess they're just trying to get a grasp on exactly what the plan is on guaranteeing the interbank senior debt market. But uh, most of the, the money funds that we speak to uh, are still refraining from buying any type of bank debt, and the banks are not lending to each other either. On a positive note, the commercial paper market seems to have started to trade uh, with a little bit more liquidity with the CP facility coming in. Uh, the corporate names, the top corporate names are trading again. Money funds are buying uh, limited amounts out to three months. So it, it, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Do you think it's that the money markets and the other investors, I mean, has the problem been solved but people haven't figured it out yet? Or maybe the problem hasn't been solved? Uh, I, I think it's a combination of both, but I really think that the the – the, the funds themselves uh, don't really understand exactly where the guarantees are, and they still are wary and are not trusting the balance sheets of the banks yet. I mean, you saw again today uh, UBS getting a $60 billion capital injection, and until these headlines just stop hitting the tape on the banks, I, I guess the, 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 the funds, the investors are... Uh, they're comfortable sitting on the sidelines and accepting lower yields. And a, and, a, and a perfect example of this is the Treasury bill market. The short bills, the two-week, the three-week bills, are trading with negative yields. Uh, it happened once wow. last week and about two weeks ago when we had the first big downtrade in the stock market. This hasn't happened since the Great Depression, and that's basically people are willing to, you know, buy an, an asset such as a Treasury bill because they know they'll get their money back in two weeks, three weeks, and they'll accept a small negative return for the safety of the Treasury bill. Wow. All right. Well, Tom Corona, thank you so much. Uh, you depress us in a different way every time we talk, so thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> to do that. I can't wait for the phone call to tell you that everything's fixed and it's time to get back in. Let's hope that's next week. All right. Thanks, All right. Tom Corona of Tradition Asia Securities. Thank you. So Tom Corona is a middleman between banks. When a bank has needs to borrow some money, Tom Corona will get money through 
bonds, basically short-term bonds from either another bank or one of these money market funds, and he's just sitting there not doing anything. And the Alex, you know, because you've seen his office. He, right. In the old days, he he would easily trade billions of dollars a day. Right. It's a huge, huge office. Tons of tons of traders, you know, who are who are doing this. And basically, what they do is that there's uh, there's you know, organizations and institutions with lots and lots of money, and they and they lend it to people, and they're just not lending it. That's, they're just that's, giving it to yeah. the U.S. government. Yeah. So when he was saying that bond, Treasury bonds were trading negative, what that means is normally, even if you're going to lend to the U.S. government, you want some return, maybe a one percent, three percent, something small. People are willing to lend to the U.S. government and lose money. That's astounding to because me. they feel confident that at least they will get some of the money back. That that is a very that is what they call flight to quality. We've been right. joking that the U.S. government has become the world's biggest mattress where you just shove your money. In. Right. And, 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 and a lot of people say, well, why don't you just keep it in cash? If you're just going to get a negative return, why don't you just keep it in cash? And that runs into a problem if you have multiple millions or billions or trillions of dollars. Um, you can't just you, you can't just keep it in cash because no, no, your deposits aren't guaranteed that high. You know they're only guaranteed up to a certain you know amount. So you have to put it somewhere that's not cash. And treasuries is the best thing to put it in. And our other um, planet money indicator, the TED spread that we talk a lot about, which measures how banks are are or are not lending to each other. It's it it actually got a little better yesterday. And then got worse, and today it's better. So it's still above four, which is a troubling number. Very troubling. We want that way historically below one. Yeah. yeah, historically high. But it it did fall six percent. And with the TED spread, the lower it is, the better. So at least it fell six percent. That's good. Frankly, we want it to fall eighty percent, seventy five percent, right, um, or more. Six percent is not going to do it. Six percent is not going to do it. But at least it's moving in the right direction. There was another indicator that came out today, uh, which is the consumer price index, and that is also um, that that is also a sort of a mixed bag. It came out and it basically said the consumer price index measures inflation. It measures. Um, uh, how much more things cost today than they did, you know, last week or last month, um, and everybody thinks that if inflation is low, that's good. And the consumer price index came out today, and inflation is basically flat, there which is, is no fabulous. Inflation. I don't have to pay anything more for sandwiches and computers and cars. It's wonderful news. You would think. Um, the problem with I set you up there. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're a professional. Yeah. Um, the The problem is that if uh, uh, the on the other side of inflation is deflation, and deflation, almost every economist will tell you is is worse. Um, and deflation hasn't really happened in this country since again, the Great Depression. So deflation is when it just keeps going down? When prices go down day after day. Yeah, deflation is the opposite of inflation when prices go down. And the reason that... Which seems like a good thing, maybe. Well, it is a good thing in a very, very limited context, but it's not actually a good thing. If you're talking about actual, what they what economists talk about when they're talking about deflation, that is not simply prices, things becoming more, more affordable. That is an actual monetary problem. And what it means is basically everything's price is going down. And when everything's price goes down, the thing that you could, as a company, the thing that you could sell for $5 today, you can only sell for $4 tomorrow. So you're making less money. And then if you're making less money, you can only pay your workers 
less money. And if your workers are making less money, then they can then they can't buy as much stuff. So there's so demand goes down, and then the prices of goods and services go down even more. And, and you so, also have an incentive, I would think, not to invest because why build a factory for a hundred million dollars to make goods that are going to cost less and the factory will be worth less than a hundred million dollars. Right. And then if there's less investment, then that also feeds into this vicious cycle. So there is so deflation is really it just turns into a downward spiral very, very quickly. So that is why that and this is what Ben Bernanke is worried about. That's why everybody who is sort of worried about inflation in the beginning, um, you know, their 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 worries have proven to be um tragically uh, not, <laughs> not on target. Uh, worrying about the wrong thing. I don't want to waste money thing. worrying about the wrong thing. Now I'm yeah. going to worry about deflation and I'm going to worry about a recession. I think a theme for the last couple of weeks has been every day we want to scare and depress our listeners in a slightly different way. Now, it should be pointed out that the, in, during the Great Depression, the, the Fed didn't do all the things that the Fed is now doing today. So there's, they are on the, this case. This is the thing that Ben Bernanke is very worried about and he's fighting uh, as much as he can. Okay, look, since we're not going to worry about the Great Depression mm-hmm. right this second, I'm going to worry about the recession because I'm getting a lot of this on the blog. We have a listener question from Leah Hyman of Portland, Oregon. Leah's in her late 20s, poor thing. I'm too young to have experienced a recession. I know that there have been recessions during my lifetime, but I've not never been old enough to be affected by them. And now I am old enough to be affected by them. Um, and I have no idea what a recession really means to my everyday life? Does it mean that I'm going to have, that bread is going to be really expensive? Does it mean that um, inflation is going to be totally insane? Does it mean that all the restaurants and bars in my town are going to go under? Well, some of them are going to go under. Yes. I mean, I think it does mean, you know, I think we were all alive in the late 70s. We were all alive in 1991 during that recession. That's right when I graduated from college. I think you do. Yeah, that's when I graduated from college. And my my memory of that is my memory of that's my basic adult memory of of a recession is graduating from college and not being able to find a job. No jobs. They just told us there would be no jobs. That was it. Forget it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. get a job. And there was a feeling. I mean, I think. I think of that feeling you have when you have a really bad flu and you just think, I always have been sick and I always will be sick and you can't imagine feeling well. Mm -hmm. And that's what I remember in 1991 is just this depressing feeling that whatever happened in America when young people had a dream and a vision and could imagine success, that phase of America is over. And it's just – a miserable slog with a dark future. You had a much more macro view of it. I remember just thinking like, oh, it's – I just thought that was the way it was when you graduated from college because I didn't fully realize that we were even really in a recession. I knew we were in a recession, but I didn't actually understand what that meant as an adult. But um, I, the, I remember it later in the 90s when we were out of a recession and I would start meeting kids and they're like 20, you know, 22, 23, and they were graduating from college and just like – jumping into the job market and getting paid lots and lots of money. And that's when I realized, oh, I graduated during a recession. That's what that was. But, you know, I didn't really notice the recession, the recessions that I lived, I've lived through in terms of prices so much. I actually felt like I had plenty of money. I worked very little and I lived in a really cheap little $200 room in an apartment mm-hmm. um, in San Francisco. And then I lived in another cheap little place in Maine. You just didn't have a ton of money, but you had a lot of time. And I notice now in my neighborhood, more families out doing things like playing kickball. There are more pickup games going on in the parks. 
I'm oh. not saying we're in a recession, but there's there is free fun. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a rosy view. Yes, recessions are wonderful. You get to spend there's time lot, with your family. There's, there's a lot <laughs> of crime. I, I, I think yeah. that get fixed. You know, th- there's a thing that uh, economists always talk about. It it it's the effect is on the margin, and and mm-hmm. what they mean is that a, an effect it doesn't. A recession is not black or white. It doesn't mean that every single person is happy during growth and obviously and every single person is miserable during um, during a recession. But I think what it means is that people who and businesses and others, things that are just home run successes are going to do OK. I mean, right. if you're a orthopedic surgeon going to be fine. You might not make quite as much money. If you're, you know, a nuclear physicist or if you're just a really, really good plumber or whatever, you're going to do okay. It, it's those marginal businesses that are less likely to click. I was thinking about this in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, which is right on the border between sort of the yuppie spread south from Park Slope into a working class neighborhood. And just for the last three or four years, it's just felt inevitable that, you know, the kind of cheap, lousy liquor store closes and a fancy, snobby wine store opens in its place. The the old-fashioned pizza place closes and a more, you know, fashionable, higher-end pizza place opens. And it just sort of felt inevitable that this yuppie spread would take over my neighborhood. And just yesterday I was walking around and I was thinking, oh, so that – that's not going to happen, at least not for a couple years, because because that wine store, say, or the the hips the hipster restaurant, is on the margin. It it went a little bit farther than the core safe. Yeah, place. now it's going to get reeled but, back in. But for but but in terms of Leah, I feel like actually like what it actually means to to her. I think it means it's. You know, if she's in her twenties, she probably doesn't have a lot of seniority at her job. It might be harder. You know, she might be more at risk at her job because she is like younger and probably less senior. She has less experience. And uh, if she doesn't have a job now, it might be harder for her to find a job. You know, that's that's basically what it means. And then it'll get better. But it will get better. I think even the most pessimistic views we've heard from really the darkest economists and the darkest market players is it'll be rough for a year, a year and a half. Right. But and it'll be like what we've what. All three of us have lived through several times. Yes. We're still here. Yeah. We're in still a weird here. way, it's like sort of because it happened in such a spectacular fashion this way, this this recession, I think it's more on people's minds. You're going to get a T-shirt out of yeah, this one, Leah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so one thing that marks a recession um, – and by the way, that's one of the weird things about a recession. Nobody actually can tell you what it is. Uh, there's this – Or I, when it begins. Or when it begins. I mean there's this idea that, oh, a recession is when there's two consecutive quarters, meaning six full months – of negative economic growth. But that's actually not what economists use. And people, different people have different definitions. Different countries have different definitions. But one thing that seems pretty consistent is a, dep- is a recession ha- – when a recession happens, people spend less money. And we talked to uh, one of our favorite economists, Amr Sufi, who teaches at the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. Uh, you might remember um, he had a different take on the economic crisis when we talked to him last. You posited a theory, and you said you didn't have enough data to prove it at that time. But your theory was that what might be happening now is not entirely a financial Wall Street credit crisis, but actually more of a standard issue elimination of consumer spending, that the that the American consumer is, is given up on buying, and that is adding to the financial crisis. 
I think you you can update that theory with some actual facts today. Right. So I think I, again, I want to be clear from the beginning that it's 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 hard to argue that the consumer is uh, hurting for reasons that have nothing to do with the financial crisis. Uh, obviously, since about August of last year, it has been a lot harder to get a mortgage. It's been harder to get a home equity line of credit. So those things could be contributing to the drop in consumption. But the point that I wanted to reiterate is just that household consumption, or just how much people are buying, is one of the most important economic indicators of a recession. And the news that came out yesterday that retail sales of businesses in the United States for the month of September were down 1.2% uh, from August is very strong evidence that household consumption is dropping rapidly and is probably a big reason for the stock market reaction uh, yesterday, which was, of course, extremely negative. Does 1.2% seem like a lot? Can you just help me understand that in context? Yeah, so that's a month-on-month change. So that's just in one month, retail sales dropped by 1.2%. Just to put this into perspective, consumption uh, makes up 70% of GDP. So the total output of the economy 70% 70% of that is when you know you and I buy things. And can we just do a, a quick definition? I mean, people hear this phrase GDP all the time, and it's the size of the economy, but what in the world does that mean? It's basically the output of goods and services in the economy. So it's basically made up of uh, four main components, government spending, consumption, you, what you and I buy, what businesses invest, and then net exports, which is basically what U.S. businesses export minus what we import. So every time I buy a sandwich or a computer or go for a flight or pay for a doctor's visit, that's dinging GDP. That's adding money to GDP. Exactly. And ultimately, the money that you spend is, is money somebody else is earning, you know, in, in the aggregate scheme of things. You, if, you, if you want to take the extreme, it's kind of a measure of how our standard of living is going up because it's a measure of how much income we're making based on what other people are buying from us. And that number that represents the health or the size of the U.S. economy the biggest chunk of that number, by a long shot, is consumer spending. Is people exactly. buying stuff? Exactly. Exactly. It's about seventy percent. And that's not every country, right? That's the U.S. is higher than other countries. I think it is higher than other countries, but every country, I think, the primary component would be consumption. I think we're on the higher end of that, um, and that's being reflected by the fact that you know part of the reason the world economy is is getting very worried is because the U.S. consumer. Uh, is the ultimate buyer of a lot of goods from all across the whole world. So it's not just that the consumer affects the U.S. economy. The U.S. consumer actually affects the world economy in a a pretty deep way. All right, but I think I derailed you from Laura's question. 1.2%, how much is that? When was the last time we dropped 1.2%? So, oh, I don't know that exact number, but just to put it in perspective, when we talk about GDP growth, we talk about how much did the economy grow, and there we're talking about, you know, a change from 2% positive growth to negative 1%, like a shrinking, that's a major recession. So if you want to put 1.2% into that perspective, if consumption falls by 1.2% for the quarter uh, at an annualized rate, so if, if that's a huge change in GDP, that can definitely take us from, you know, a moderate recession to a very severe recession. Wait, are we in a major recession, in your opinion? We, I, I don't want to say major, you know, what's the qualification of major versus minor, but I won't be surprised if the third quarter GDP numbers come out 
uh, and show you know pretty sharply negative growth. I don't want to make a specific prediction, uh, but I think it's safe to say that this drop in retail sales for September, which is of course the last month of the third quarter, so taken together, the evidence from July, August, and September suggests that consumption could be really bad for the third quarter, which would, of course, put us definitely in recession ter- territory. And if it continues, a lot of times a severe recession is not so much the one-quarter drop, but then the length of how long it lasts. Uh, and these are bad numbers because what's going to happen now is businesses really are going to start cutting back on inventory investment, on capital expenditures. Those are also part of GDP. And so you see there's going to be probably a pretty sharp contraction. So that's the ripple effects. I don't go to the store and buy a computer. I actually, truthfully, last week I was going to upgrade my computer and buy a new one, and I decided not to and stick with my old one, even though it's kind of slow and broken. It's your fault, Adam. It's It's my fault, fault. (laughs) exactly. (laughs) But that's what we're talking about, people making decisions like that. I I was in PC Richards, which is a big electronics uh, store, discount store on on this Sunday, and normally Columbus Day weekend Sunday, I mean, you couldn't move through that store. It mm-hmm. was empty. I'd asked some of the salesmen. They said just nothing was moving. So so 1.2%, it sounds like not much, but it is something you can feel and see. Right, definitely. The U.S. consumer in some ways through this whole crisis may have been our last hope. You know, Could it be that people continued to buy even though their housing prices have gone down, even though gas prices have gone, gone up, even though they, ha- they can't access home equity lines of credit or a second mortgage? It could be maybe they would still scrap together the money to buy things, but we're starting to see evidence now that they are not buying things, uh, and that's a real worry going forward. Great. Can you can you help me understand something I'm getting on the blog, mm-hmm. which is people are people are saying, "Hey, we're being told we're living beyond our means, mm-hmm. and we need to stop spending money and save." Right. And then somebody like you comes along and says, "Hold on, everybody, you got to get out there and spend money. You're the last hope of the global economy." Well, I'll be clear. I'm not saying I think people should spend money. I don't know if they should. All I'm saying is mechanically, if people stop saving money, the economy is going to go in, you know, into at least in the short run, up, 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 you know, could be quite bad for the economy. But let me be clear about something. There is no doubt that from 2001 to 2006, a lot of my research shows uh, that people were getting terms on their mortgages, on their home equity lines of credit that were historically good meaning they were able to borrow a lot of money, the advent of subprime lending, etc. There isn't yet to be academic research that I think convincingly demonstrates that that led to higher consumption, but it probably did. I think we're safe to say, you know, if I can easily take out a home equity loan and I can get an outrageously low interest rate on my house, I might use that money to redo my kitchen or buy a new TV. So I agree with what you're reading on your blog that we're naturally in for a correction in consumption. We simply were probably living beyond our means, is a nice way to put it. The question is, can we smooth it on the, da- on, on, on the way down? That's really the question. Do we want it to all just crash, or do we want to try to smooth it in some way? And I think that is partially the purpose of the politicians in D.C. They're trying to think of ways we know we need to adjust our consumption levels to lower levels. How do we do so in a way that doesn't lead to a severe contraction. So, and that's basically an issue of time. Do we do the adjustment in a few months or in a few years? Right. For example, one of one of the reasons they justify giving out rebates or giving out fiscal stimulus by you know sending checks out that rebate your taxes 
is to try to get people to buy a little more than they otherwise would so that you kind of smooth it, you know, so that you cut back a little this month and a little next month rather than just completely not buying anything this month. Have you done anything in your home to, are you cutting back on spending or you, do you? You know, we just had a baby in August, so I, or in July, and it's just, I don't even know, it's at that time with a three-month-old baby, I don't even know if we pay much attention. So <laughs> to be honest, I think we have cut back here and there, but it hasn't been something, you know, when all you're doing is going to bed every night at 10 p.m. because you're exhausted, you're not going out to dinner or to movies or anything else anyway, so. But your diaper purchases are Yeah, my up. diaper purchases are still pretty constant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks to Amr Sufi and his new family for at least easing the drop in consumer spending a little bit. So, you know, I was, I was wondering this week about you know, we're here, we, there's all these words that you hear during this financial crisis that you haven't heard before, and like leverage. I know we're going to be talking about leverage soon um, and equity and all these plans. Um, one of the words is balance sheet. Everybody's talking about balance sheet. The balance sheet is damaged. The balance sheet needs to be repaired. And I realize I don't really know what a balance sheet is. Um, so I called up a professor at Columbia University, Partha Mahanram, and uh, he is an expert on balance sheets. He was given to me as an expert on balance sheets. That's so cool. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I, I, I started off by asking him just what is a balance sheet? Okay. Let's say you and I start a bank. Right. All right. So what we do is let's say you put $50 in and I put $50 in. Okay. So right now the balance sheet is going to look like the following. We're going to have only one asset, which is cash of 100 Mm-hmm. And all that's going to be on the liability side is going to be owner's equity of 100 Okay. Okay. So, so that let's say one, we do this and we, we start a bank. So so wait, so just stop right there because now we're getting into 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 um I believe it's called accrual accounting, right? Where the both sides, is that correct? Well, yeah. this is I wouldn't we haven't reached accrual. It's, it's a double, double ledger double accounting basically. Double ledger, right? Is that what Double entry bookkeeping. Yeah. Double entry bookkeeping. Both yeah. sides of the ledger. Right. Okay, so when I so when you and I we have $100 and we put it in and it goes on both sides of the balance sheet. Absolutely. Okay. So basically, the $100, right now, I haven't lent any money out yet. It's just cash. Okay. Okay? And the $100, on the other hand, is owner's equity because that's the money we as owners have put in. I see. Okay. Okay? Now, let's, let's just take this. I'm going to take this through two more steps so this point becomes very clear. Gotcha. Okay? Let's just say we open, uh, we open branches. Mm-hmm. And let's just ignore the cost of the branches right now just to make things easy. Okay. And let's say we raise $900 in deposits. Mm-hmm. From customers. Okay. Okay. Instantaneously, our balance sheet is going to look something like cash a thousand, because the hundred we put in and nine hundred we raised from the others, mm-hmm. and then we're going to have liabilities of nine hundred, mm-hmm. which is the money we owe to all these depositors. Right. And the owner's equity, which is our money, which is a hundred. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So that's step one is just starting the bank. Right. Step two is getting deposits. Mm-hmm. Let's do step three. Step three is we start lending money out. Okay. Let's say we keep $100 because we need to have some money just in case people want to take their money out. Right. And let's say we deploy 900 as loans. Okay. To banks or, sorry, to uh, corporations which need money. Okay. Then the $1,000 of cash on my balance sheet on mm-hmm. the asset side just became cash 100 and I have an asset, like a loan asset of 900 I see. Okay, but there's no change on my liabilities side. I still have liabilities of 900 which is the deposits of all the people, right. and have owner's equity of a mm-hmm. of 100 Okay. So that's so, fundamentally how a bank is. So, now, so if you the, think about what this $900, uh, on the, if you think about the liability side of the balance sheet, I have liabilities of 900 I have owner's equity of 100 
Mm-hmm. The ratio of these two is what people refer to as leverage. I see. Okay, it's like I've put in a hundred of my own money as a as the owner of the bank. Mm-hmm. I've also put in nine hundred dollars of somebody else's money, mm-hmm. outsider's money. Mm-hmm. So the more the outsider's money, in some sense, the more levered a bank is. So obviously, in that in that example, in our in our in our sort of little theoretical example. The leverage would be nine to one. We have we have hundred dollars of our own money, nine hundred of somebody else's money, and and most banks, obviously, are very different than that. In that they have lots lots more money, and they have lots uh, and the 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 things they do with it is very much more complicated. They can loan it to corporations, they can loan it to people, they can buy assets, they can buy all sorts of stuff. But basically, he said, um, you know, I asked him like, is this is it is it basically this this is basically the 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 way it is even on a big in a, on a big bank? And he said he said yeah. I mean, basically, a balance sheet is a balance sheet, and that that's how it looks. And then um, and he actually proved it to me. Let me just go to Edgar and try to download the latest sure, balance sure. sheet. Sure, yeah, yeah. And then we can do that. Okay, oh, okay great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can just we can hang loose for a second. Go ahead and do that. I'll just wait. So what are you doing right now? You're going to a, a website? Yeah, I'm just going to the the SEC has a website called the Edgar Database where you can essentially get the 10Ks of whatever company you want to look at. And a 10K is a financial statement. Yeah, 10K is a, essentially the is a full. It's like the annual report, but the uh, the full the full form financial report, mm-hmm. annual report. So Morgan Stanley. Okay, let's see what they have. 10 10Q. Let's look at the 10Q, which is a quarterly report on. October 9th. Okay. Right? So that's going to be as hot of the presses as you can get. So it's probably for the quarter ended in as of August 31st, 2008. Okay. So so you have the Morgan Stanley. Do, is I have it the Morgan now? Stanley balance sheet. Okay. So what, is it, what does it show us then? What's on okay, their liability I'm just trying to side? Think here. Okay. Morgan Stanley had assets, total assets of $987 billion. Okay. As of uh, August thirty first, two thousand and eight. Okay, so that's that's nine hundred and eighty seven billion dollars of money that they've either loaned to people or invested in things. Uh, they probably haven't loaned because they're not really a bank, yeah. right? So yes, just basically of, of of money that they've invested in various right securities and bonds. This is all the, the, the money and, they've yeah. deployed, basically. Okay, and so how is that broken down? So of that nine hundred eighty seven billion dollars, where where did where is that? Where did they it go? have? Um, Financial instruments owned at fair value three hundred and seventy-one billion, of which um, corporate and other debt is one hundred and eighteen. So this is basically money they've lent out to other people. Okay. I wonder why Morgan Stanley has lent money out. Maybe they have lent out uh, not as a bank, but lent to other financial institutions. I guess just as banks lend to each other and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have some government uh, securities, other so- other sovereign government obligations. So the financial instruments at fair value is three hundred and seventy one billion. So that's about a third and that's financial and that includes corporate bonds as well as government debt? Yes, but okay. these are assets, remember. These are right. things that they, they other bought. people owe them in yeah, some yeah. sense. So they, they bought you know some they bought some securities some hundred and, billion and they extra. probably bought some corporate debt. Right. Okay. And so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Then they the the other big thing is they have this thing called collateralized agreements where Securities purchased under agreements to resell, uh, $179 billion. I need to know exactly what this is. I'm wondering if this is, has some of these, um, um, some of these, what they call 
problematic assets will fall under that category. And there's something called securities borrowed of $241 billion. That's the other two big things. Those two add up to around a little more than $400 billion. Mm-hmm. So, these, so basically, that's the balance sheet. Everything else is like, you know, premises and small, uh, you know, customer receivables and stuff. But that's all like, you know, 10, 20 billion. It's not a big deal, really. So basically, so, big, so basically, they have three hundred billion in in just sort of straight ahead, you know, stock, uh, bonds, either so government they have like or three hundred and seventy one billion dollars in that in in government bonds and corporate government bonds, bonds corporate bonds, all those kinds of things, uh, contract derivatives, contracts, mm-hmm. and they have uh, two, around four hundred and it's this total adds up to like four twenty, I think, around four hundred and twenty billion dollars in collateralized agreements. I'm just trying to and you, um, and, and these are things that are are that. Even finance professors like you <laughs> have to sort of like try to figure out what that means. Well, absolutely, because you don't know exactly what goes into that. So this is probably the, the you know the CDOs and stuff, the collateralized debt obligations and stuff. Mm-hmm. That, that's probably where those things lie. So in this four hundred billion, that's where the mess is, basically. I'm, that's my guess because mm-hmm. I mean they, they don't call it CDOs per se in the in the. Uh, balance sheet, they call it collateralized financings. Mm-hmm. And CDOs, we should, probably where the, the and CDOs, CDOs, we should say, are these, are these, or what everybody's talking about is the toxic assets, the one, the assets that have lost a lot of their value, if not all of Potentially, their value. Potentially, and yeah. that's, if you look at Morgan Stanley's case, it appears to be more than half the balance, uh, around half the balance sheet, right? Now, wow. the, at the very minimum, what we can do is oh we can look at we should also look at the uh, the liability side of their balance sheet right mm-hmm. just to get a complete sense of what's going on right and if I look at the liability side um, the two sing two single largest numbers on the liability side mm-hmm. is um, two hundred and two billion dollars of um, long term borrowings which is the debt that they've actually used to finance their business. Mm-hmm. And three hundred and fifteen billion dollars of payables to customers, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing that these are just uh, money they owe to some of the, you know, count, maybe potentially some of the counterparties in some of these deals. I'm not hundred percent certain what exactly okay. this is. Now, I mean, we should point out that we're not saying obviously that Morgan Stanley is is in this position at all. This is just an example. This is just a very very theor- theoretical conversation, um, and in fact, it's entirely possible that 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 what we're talking about on Morgan Stanley's balance sheet, that $400 billion block of stuff that they don't know, it's hard to tell what it is, that could have already, that's already been written down, and maybe it's actually worth more than $400 billion. Maybe they've written it down so much that it's actually worth more and that the value will come back. So there's no way to actually say um, if it's if it's, if it's it's going to deteriorate in value or if it's actually going to go up in value. See, I get this question from people on the blog. They want to say, can you show me how, whether I can see... Can you show me how to see if my bank is solvent? And it looks like here you could go and look at the balance sheet online for your bank and still have no idea what you were looking at. Right, and and that's what I mean. And this is talk, one of the leading experts. This is one of the leading experts in in the in, in the country. And then and and it's one of those things where like entire classes are taught on balance sheet analysis. And what you're trying to do is just figure out in what kind of shape the, the, the company's in. You can't really tell from the balance sheet, apparently. You have to really dig, and you have to look at footnotes, and they're very long. It's just, you know, so it's th- I think that's one of the things that's contributing to this whole mess is that, you know, companies have to release these, these you know, these, uh, these, this paperwork, but then looking at the paperwork, you still can't really tell that much. You know, it's, I keep being amazed in, in this whole crisis how much, how much you have to learn and how it kind of gets exciting to learn it. It's like 
there, there's a mystery novel we're living in, and mm-hmm. the clues are buried deep inside of stuff that's available for free on the internet that um, that has been around us our whole lives. I mean, we could have read a book on bank balance sheets at any point in right. our lives, but never, never, never really wanted yeah. to. But, but it's um, you know just. I find it, I mean, just that part of it, the intellectually curious part of my brain, there's something right. very exciting. You know, you and I started and we just tried to figure out what a mortgage-backed security is a year or two ago. Right. But that wasn't enough. We had to figure out what the derivatives of mortgage-backed securities are. And then well, we I had, had to figure out what a security was. <laughs> and what That's a mortgage where I was. Starting. was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. so the adventure continues. Well, we might, have been, we might have been stretching people's patience with the balance sheet segment there. But yeah, no, I, I well, think it, it is like, it, it is like, it's exactly right. It's a mystery novel, sort of. Of, you know, piece of those clues. Maybe not the best written mystery novel, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it affects our lives in a very real way. Um, anyway, that that is Planet Money for today, October 16th. I did want to say while we have been recording this, the Dow closed 400 points up today. The last time I checked, it was way down. So the volatility continues. I guess a lot of people will be glad to hear it ended up. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway, Alex Bloomberg. It's always great to have you. It's great to be here. Great. You can follow Planet Money at npr.org slash money. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>